Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Mind, hosted by serial entrepreneur and author Mark Kramer. Tune into The Best Business Minds to listen to thought-provoking interviews with best-selling business book authors who are today's leading innovators, entrepreneurs, and industry experts from around the globe. Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Minds, where we interview business uh, uh, leaders and academics that write thought-provoking books. I'm Mark Kramer, serial entrepreneur who consults with family businesses and entrepreneurs, and this is our 135th show. Today's guest is Kelly McDonald, author, How to Work With and Lead People Not Like You. And so that has been an ongoing topic for at least the last five years, and people are finally realizing the importance of this, and companies are strategically are, are using this as a way to strategically move the company forward and make significant progress. So Kelly, first of all, let's talk about your professional background. Okay, um, I'll make it quick. I am uh, a marketing person by training. That's what my degree in college was in. And uh, for 25 years, I ended up working in at, at global ad agencies, working with major you know, Fortune 500 brands and stuff. And uh, so that's where I really got my sense of research and consumer trends and really the importance of like keeping your finger on the pulse of what's going on out there so that you can do a good job for your clients in terms of advertising and marketing. And that served me well then when I started to do professional speaking and then writing is because it's all research-based and it's about, about what's happening right now and how it affects business. How many bestsellers have you won? Have you written? Four. Wow. Four. Congratulations. Thank you. Every single one of them has made the best-selling business book list for the year that they were published. And uh, it's been very gratifying. Oh, my gosh. Well, that's fantastic. And what, what drew you to marketing? Uh, I, yeah, I just I think it's really when I was in college, I was studying marketing. And then, of course, when I started working in marketing, I think it was always about like, how can we make people want to buy something? You know, what are the consumer insights? What are the values? What are the things that make somebody go, huh? That's for me. And, you know, I, I, I firmly believe that people don't buy products or services, they buy solutions. And so from a marketing standpoint, how do you position your product or service in a way that solves a problem for somebody, not just like buy this stuff, you know? And uh, I was very intrigued by the consumer insights and the values behind that, because that's what really motivates someone to buy is when you tap into their values or tap into a problem that they're having and solve it for them. Has most has most of your marketing work been on consumer products? Yes, most of it has. Some of it's been B B two B, but most of it's been B two C. I've, I've uh, I'm a serial entrepreneur and I've started over twenty five ventures. And even when you think the market wants something because you're solving a problem and you interview them, it still might not be something they're willing to even buy. That Correct. they, I mean, you don't know it. I mean, how many? CMP brands uh, put out things that they've done a ma massive amounts of research and, then, and it still fails. And it flops. Yeah. And yeah. I think that's where, uh, you know, there's something that in that consumer insight in that research process that was slightly flawed, but that slight flaw or that slight, maybe it's not even a flaw. Maybe it's just the right question wasn't asked the right way with consumers to get the right answer. And that one little thing can just, you know, kill it. That actually happened to me, and then we'll jump into your book, where I started the first insurance product to insure small business bank accounts against cyber theft. 
and two major insurers had invested me. It's a, now it's 10 years ago. And they were thought it would be so big. That's why they teamed together. And they even put a ceiling on what they could buy the business from me. So we went out there and I was featured in the Wall Street Journal, Fortune <laughs> Forbes. I was on Fox News. And Intuit picked us as one of three products that they were going to market. And we sold really nothing. Sold 53 policies. They were only $100 to $178 a year. Humbling, $10 to $50,000, huh? <laughs> you know, it was like the price of a, a hockey ticket. And nobody could figure out why. And it took me about nine months to realize that our survey was flawed. That yeah. we, the question we asked is cybersecurity, uh, um, a problem that companies should be concerned with. And everybody was, you know, every survey went higher and higher. And, but then when we uh, asked later, when we weren't signing, is cybersecurity an issue for you? The answer was only 7% said yes. 93% said no. Right. We immediately ended the company because clearly nobody was going to be buying this right. product because they didn't feel they that there care. was, yeah. yeah, it wasn't going to happen to them. Right. Even though right. we had tons of stories that happened. So it's interesting. So why did you write this book? I wrote this book because I found that my clients are, I'm just going to be really direct because I go there and in the book, I definitely go there. Um, my clients are mostly white and they're very good people, but I found that they were very clueless about how to work with and lead people not like you. And there was also a little bit of a fear factor, Mark. You know, there was a little bit of this undercurrent of we don't want to say or do the wrong thing. And we're so afraid of that, that we're not going to say anything, you know, and I feel like that is so wrong for business that we have to be able to talk about the things that are meaningful and important regarding business. And there are ways to do that. And there are ways to bridge gaps between people who have different perspectives, different backgrounds. And that's why I call it people not like you, not just, you know, uh, it's to me, it's not just race, ethnicity, age, you know, generational differences, gender and, and sexual identification. To me, diversity is any way you can be different from me. So, for example, an introvert is different than an extrovert. And if you're an extrovert like me and you're working with an introvert, you can't just, you know, you know, you can't just title wave them. They don't re they don't respond well to that. Right. And, uh, you know, I just found that there was a lot of um, interest in the diversity within the workplace in terms of even diversity of thinking and at the same time some trepidation about how do I do this without stepping on a landmine and so that's what motivated me to write the book. And who are you targeting with this? Who are you hoping is going to pick this book up and really utilize it and it's a fantastic book. Thank you. Anybody who is actually a leader and is trying to lead their diverse team, and even if your team is, I'm just going to make this up, like all white and all male, and let's say older. And there's a lot of businesses like that, industries even, construction and stuff. But again, that diversity doesn't have to fall into what I call the envelope, right? Like if I have an envelope and I'm a middle-aged white woman, and you can kind of look at me and see what I am... You know, an engineer thinks very differently than a graphic designer does. You know, someone who's in a rural community is going to be very different and operate differently than someone who lives in a loft in Manhattan. So I designed this book for anyone who's working with people not like them, which is probably every single one of us when you broaden right. the definition. And as leaders, how do you actually lead a team that is different 
that is diverse, which is a very good thing that they're diverse, but how do you get the most out of it? And how do you actually um, tap into the value of that diversity? So that's who I wrote the book for. Anybody who has a job, anybody who works. Yeah, I mean, I found that the book went across all types of uh, groups of people. Mm-hmm. And I found that you know, when I first became a CEO, when I was in my mid-20s, I had a lot to learn about how to manage people older than me. Right. You know, right. how to communicate with them, how to deal with them. And now I've just worked on a venture where all of us were like 40 years older than the CEO. And he didn't really know how to communicate with us. You know, the, the things that he was telling us were like, you know, we need to focus on um, this. And we were like, oh, come on, we've all run companies. We're all pretty focused on that. He didn't know how to deliver the message a- in a way. And speaking of that, I mean, in this book and what I talk to people about when I'm on stage, I'm a professional speaker as well, is people are struggling for what I'm going to call the script. Okay. Like, like, again, I said, they're so afraid of saying the wrong thing that they'll say nothing. And when you're working with people who are not like you, you are going to have different perspectives, different opinions based on your backgrounds, based on your work experience, you know, all these things that shape us. And So I I teach people better ways to communicate. So just a quick example is I was taught when I was a child that if you and I don't agree, Mark, okay, let's just say we don't agree. We just, we just can't come to terms on something that I was supposed to say to you, let's agree to disagree. But those are very polite words. Let's agree to disagree. The problem with that phrase is it doesn't work. It doesn't work because it kind of some comes across a little smug, like um, clearly Mark, you're too stupid to see that I'm right. You know, like that. But yeah, also, think about that way. Yeah. More importantly, it's a conversation ender because if I say, "Mark, let's agree to disagree," and you say, "Yes," we're done. And so, I don't feel that that's good for business. I don't feel like we should ever be done or finish speaking about this stuff, especially when we don't agree. So, a better way, and I put this in the book, is a better way to say, "I see it differently." I see it differently is not combative or antagonistic, and I'm not even trying to persuade you over to my point of view. It's a simple declarative statement. And I promise you that if I were to say to you, Mark, I see it differently, you would come back with something along the lines of, well, tell me how you see it. And it's not a conversation ender. It's a conversation extender. We still might not ultimately agree, but we're going to get further into our thinking behind what we believe and what we feel and think. And I think that's good for business. So the book is full of these like little tips and tactics like that, that people can use to effectively lead and work with people and not get in trouble for saying the wrong thing or not get into a pointless argument or not end up with a conversation ender. I have to say, one of the things that struck me about this book is that everybody should be reading around the globe because politics and everything, like you all have more in common than we think you know when i meet people that i have a different point of view i try to find the common ground as always there yeah like oh you're a baseball fan or you're a football fan or whatever your children or yeah yeah. what do you like to do on the weekends i mean there's always more that unites us than actually that divides us yeah absolutely and we're and we'll talk more about that as uh during this hour so what's your definition of a, a diverse workforce my definition, my definition of diversity is any way that you can be different from me. So, you know, you asked when we were chatting before we went live here, if I had children and I, I, I do not. And so most women my age do. And my point on that would be, you know, I can, I can talk to another woman who's white 
my same age. Let's say we live in the same zip code. Let's say we make the same household income. And on all of these demographic factors, you know, race, age, income, geography, all these things, that woman and I would look the same on paper. But if she has kids and I don't, we're going to be really different, right? The way that we prioritize and make decisions. And that has nothing to do with race, ethnicity, age, you know, generations and income and things like that. So my definition is any way that you could be different from me. And when you think about that from a workforce, you may have a diverse workforce with all different kinds of backgrounds and all different kinds of people. Or like I said, going back to that example of, let's say, a very heavily dominated male, white, older, you know, uh, uh, industry, you may have people who on the surface look the same and share many demographic traits, but if they operate differently, I had a boss one time who was the kind of guy who really needed to ponder information. If I wanted a decision from him on Thursday, I had to get with him on Monday so that he had a couple of days to think about it. And then other people that I've worked with are like, ready, fire, aim, you know, <laughs> like they don't need any time. So all these different ways of thinking, the different ways of doing business, whether someone is risk averse or a risk taker, introvert or extrovert, a morning person is different than a night owl. I mean, any way that you can think about diversity is what I'm, my definition is of a, a diverse team. And it's always there. I mean, every single team is, is very diverse, even though on the surface, our envelopes might look similar. I have to say, I fell into the trap uh, when I was selecting your book, thinking, oh, all right, this is a book about diversity when it comes to minority hires and so mm -hmm. forth and why this is important. And so I said, well, you know, we need this as part of the conversation. And then, of course, I read the book and found out it was way more than that and and hits, you know, more topics and more important topics because of, of people being so different culturally and all the things that you've already right. mentioned so far and companies realizing that you know when i guess when i was a kid everybody came from the same region you know whoever is employed now you don't find that at, at all you know people right. come from all over the country all over the world and now that we've been working from home big businesses are realizing we can hire people from anywhere you know you can be a us based company and hire someone who lives in switzerland and if they're all working from home it really doesn't matter anymore. Yeah. And, and you're seeing a lot of that. And as uh, someone wrote in here, don't forget people with disabilities, neurodiverse, Absolutely. et cetera. And so, I, um, I want to just add yeah. one thing is not everyone's disability is visible, right? So if you're hearing, if you have severe hearing loss, you might wear a hearing device, but it's not necessarily visible to someone that there's a disability there. So I just want to even broaden that, that uh, definition, because sometimes people, when they think of uh, disabilities and abilities, they think of things that are very visible, like mobility in a wheelchair or neurodiversity, where there might be behavioral uh, demonstrations of different ways of thinking and stuff, but not every disability is visible. Yeah, well, you can have Asperger's or any of those things, and that's not highly visible. Right. And even some people who have it, it uh, still isn't visible, even after some time, you just not don't pick it up. Right. Aside from fairness and equality, why is diversity important? Because it's been proven again and again and again and again. There's really never been a study that has not shown this, that on every metric that business success is measured, growth in sales, profit, customer retention, customer loyalty, customer engagement, employee engagement, employee retention, on every measurement, 
metric that business success is measured, diverse teams outperform non-diverse teams. Every single study has proven that. There's never been a study that shows, oh, well, you know, a diverse team, the the non-diverse team blew them away. It doesn't work like that. And so this is not, you know, kumbaya and let's hold hands and sing we are the world. This is about business and business runs on metrics of success. Businesses don't keep doing things if they're not successful. And so since we've realized that diverse teams is a significant competitive edge in business, companies are scrambling to really diversify their teams. And it's not just from an optic standpoint of, oh, look how inclusive we are and diverse. It's because it works. And again, businesses don't do anything that doesn't make them money and that isn't successful. So diversity has been proven to be a huge competitive asset. And that's what's driving business. And that's why the book is important because as businesses have become more diverse and are really focused on that now, because now it's now like this well-established tool in your toolbox that can really make a difference in your business. Now we get into the how, and that's what the book is really about. It's less about the why, it's more about the how. Um, are there industries that em- embrace diversity more than others? Oh, absolutely. I think technology was like the first industry that really embraced technology because they have, you know, technology and software companies and tech companies are working with people from all over the globe. And that diversity has brought a major, major technology advances. But there's also other industries like I've done a lot of work in the food industry, whether it's uh, restaurants and whether it's food distributors. Their food workers are incredibly diverse, whether it's people in the warehouse putting, you know, boxes of ketchup on trucks to take to restaurants, et cetera. The food industry is extremely diverse. Uh, The construction industry is very diverse. Um, Retail is very diverse. I mean, there's a lot of industries that have always been diverse and uh, they understand the value of that. Um, So yes, and technology, of course. I mean, it's, it's a huge thing. It's the biggest trend in my in my lifetime and in my career, I've seen three macro trends that were game changers for business. The first one was technology, right? It just changed everything. And it didn't go away. We just continue to refine technology and make it better. The second one was social media because it moved from a let's connect on Facebook and be friends to how do we leverage this in business? And now it's part of every marketing plan and it just continues to get refined. And I feel like diversity is the third big macro trend in my career. And I think in a way, Mark, we're going to look back on times like this in 10 years and go, how cute, you know, like, like all of our efforts are going to be so much more sophisticated and we're going to have learned so much more about diversity and the impact on business growth and profit. And that's what's driving this now. It's not a fad. It's a trend. Yeah. As every generation learns about the prior generation, they're like, really? I mean, it took you so long to get to that. Like that was obvious. And the difference between a fad and a trend is fads come and go, like fashion. This is not a fad. Yeah. This is a trend, just like technology and social media and digital marketing were trends. Absolutely. So a question from the audience. Sure. What, uh, what is one blind spot you had in writing your book? And what is your one blind spot that many companies have that if they addressed and fixed it, it would have the biggest impact on their culture? My blind spot in writing the book was that I am a white woman who's middle-aged. And so I'm not a person of color and I couldn't talk about 
the experiences of people of color or any marginalized group other than perhaps women. Um, and so I had to get some real outside help in that area to get that perspective. And I, I, it's not really a blind spot. It's just something that I couldn't, that I wasn't qualified to write about without some outside help and advisors who were very, very beneficial to me. The blind spot in business that I see time and time again is the organizations that are successful, but have a very homogenous team, right? So again, let's, uh, let's take financial services. Financial services is changing and the, the, the workforce is becoming more diverse, but slowly. And it's still very dominated by older white men who have been in that industry for 30 years. They work at an insurance company. They're doing well. The insurance company is making money. And so the blind spot for them can be, why would we change anything that we're doing? Because we're successful. Whatever we're doing is clearly working. Why would we mess with that? And that blind spot, because they are successful, becomes, let's not change anything. And what they don't realize is if they just changed their workforce a little bit, they would even be more successful. So that's the thing that I find I have to overcome with some companies and organizations that I work with is you are successful. That's a great launching pad to come from. That's a great platform to come from when it comes to diversity, because you're only going to be more successful. But they um, don't no see it that way. Always. They don't always see it that way. Well, like you say, they always use that saying, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Right. And and how many companies have gone the way of the dodo bird, right? Sure. That, you know, Kodak, you know, just uh, you can name tons of these businesses that don't exist anymore that were right. once high flyers because they, they dominated their industries. That. Yeah, mm-hmm. totally dominated their industry. Yeah. Um, how, are, how are we doing as a country with embracing diversity in areas not necessarily known for it in the South and Midwest? Well, I think um, I think business is doing a great job everywhere. I mean, I think this is again something that business has, and industries have woken have have been awakened to to realize that it is a business asset, just like getting a new software program that's updated or things like that. You don't just languish in your business. Um, of course, there's regional differences that are slower to adopt anything. Mark, I would say anything. You know, they're just. They don't move at the pace that the the East Coast and the West Coast do. And I think culturally, in many cases, um, societies in the South or in the Midwest, their their culture is just like, these are are my people, right? They're, They're not encouraged to branch out and try to make diverse friends or expand their circle and network. And so that, I think, is... It's not a it's not really a problem. It's just that's not going to those cultures and those communities are not going to develop in diversity as fast as other places. So um, I think that's not necessarily like something that's going to hold them back. But I think it's something that's real, which is like they're a couple of steps behind just because culturally there's nothing that encourages them to expand beyond their their circle. I think they are forced to do it if they think that they're going to attract industry, entrepreneurs, all these things that are going to make them more successful. Because today, um, the smartest people want to be around a diverse group of people because they find intellectually interesting. They want to hear different points of view. And the companies that don't encourage it or don't support it you're going to have a hard time recruiting those companies yeah. and those people to come to your region. And investors. Like 
And yeah. investors, that's a big thing too, is there are some companies that have been pushed into diversifying their teams because their investors are like, we need diversity. And so, you know, they don't get the money that investors um, talk about without doing that. And I want to say I, one I, thing, if I may, yeah. I hear this expression a lot too, and it's complete bunk. People say demographics are destiny. Okay. And they, they say something like, well, we're not really going to necessarily have to go out and recruit diverse teams because they're just going to come to us because the changing demographics in the United States means that people are just, that it's our destiny. Not true at all. And the reason for that is people, good people have choices at all times and they are going to go to the employers and the businesses that actually look are more diverse and more high performing and so you, if you just think that you're going to attract more diverse teams just because that's the, the composition of the population around you, not necessarily true. The best people are always going to have choices and the best companies and investors are always going to have choices. And so demographics are not your destiny. This is something you have to actually concentrate on and develop. I 100 percent agree with you. And I remember even when I was going to school, I went to West Virginia. And they were starting to recruit people from other states because they wanted more diversity, even in the state. And I think that people just when they hear the word diverse, they think it it's uh, minority inclusion. But it, right. it means so much more uh, than that and so much uh, just as important as that. A question from the audience. How would you recommend to handle a racist, sexist, homophobic or offensive remark in a professional way? I love this question. I'm going to give you uh, two answers, whoever asked that. The first one is, one of the things I find very disarming is to say, I'm going to assume that you didn't mean that the way it came across, because it, it, it definitely lets that person know that they stepped over the line, right? I'm going to assume that you didn't mean that the way it sounded or whatever. And then watch their reaction, because if it was a stupid thing to say, right? Like, it's like every one of us makes a stupid comment now and then. If it was a stupid thing to say, but not intentional, not divisive, not a dagger, then they're going to freak out and be like, oh my gosh, yeah, yeah, and I didn't mean it like that. And if you, if that person was throwing a racist, sexist, demeaning comment at you, then it actually makes them defend that, which is indefensible. So, you know, you can rush off to HR or you can just stand your ground and go, I'm going to assume that you didn't mean that the way it sounded. Now, I want to talk about the bystander effect, because what if that comment, some, let's say, Mark, that someone made a comment like that to you, not to me. Yeah. Someone made a really dismissive, demeaning, inappropriate comment to you. And I'm the bystander. I'm not the perpetrator and I'm not the victim. What is my role in that? So there's a number of different things that we can do as bystanders because that's just as big of a wound. I mean, if, if we don't do anything as bystanders, then we start to hate ourselves and go, wow, people can talk like that at this company and no one will do anything, including me. So yeah. as bystanders, we can say, um, Mark, are you okay with that comment? Because I'm not. I thought it was really dismissive and rude. I mean, there's a million layers to this particular question and I could go on and on about that, but it's a really great question. And I think what we have to do is call it out in that moment, whether we're the bystander or the victim. And then of course, as a victim, most companies have a very strict zero tolerance policy on this, but you're letting the other person backtrack if they need to and apologize 
and you're letting and you're putting them on high alert that that is not going to be tolerated. I think uh, you had in your book, you know, I'm reading a book a week, but I'm pretty sure it was in your book that you had an example of somebody was a star player and the organization was afraid to get rid of them uh, and wanted it to just go away. Talk about that. Yeah, that happens with a a lot of older organizations that are kind of set in their ways, too, is they might have, let's just take a sales organization. Maybe their top salesperson is, you know, top salesperson is the is guilty of making occasional racist remarks or sexist remarks or demeaning remarks that the company's not behind. But they're like, well, you know, that's that's Joe. He's always been like that. And, you know, like he's our top performer. So we just kind of let it slide. Those days are over. Those days are over. You cannot tolerate that as a business. Number one, the risk of of litigation is too great. I mean, that person says the wrong thing and someone's going to bring, you know, bring that to a legal standpoint. And it's just too risky. Um, But also, I think culturally, organizations are realizing that if they let that kind of behavior slide just for profit and just for sales, they're just as guilty as making those comments. And and it really says something about their moral compass as a company. It's like, okay, if you if you make enough money for us, any any behavior goes. And most companies are not willing to do that anymore. But they're having to take a hard look at that and have those conversations with a top performer and say, look, you're entitled to think whatever you want to think. But at this company, here are our values. And here's how we respect each other. And here's how we perform with each other. And those kind of comments will not be tolerated anymore. Are we clear? So you can think them in your head and do whatever you want to do, but we're not going to operate like that. And you're going to, you, you need, if you want to remain a high performing person here, you're going to have to change your behavior. And are there any questions about that? I mean, like lay it out because you're complicit as an organization if you, if you don't. Listen, we, we've now seen this just recently with Kanye Wesson and mm-hmm. uh, Kyrie Irving, right. where these guys were making boatloads of money, um, endorsed companies. Yep. I mean, Kanye West, uh, those companies have to restate their financials and let go of significant oh, number of people because they're not going to be producing his shoe anymore. I mean, right. I, I read in the Wall Street Journal, you know, these guys... I mean, it, it was a hard uh, pill to swallow because they were thinking, is there any way to get them to apologize? And come on, Kanye, you got to do the right thing because this is really going to financially impact us. It's, it, people are going to lose their jobs over this. And he refused to. And right. Kyrie, it took a long time to get him to come around. And, and Nike basically said, hey, we're done with you. You know, this, and- this is not what represents our brand. And I would go one step further on that, which is even if that, you know, even if those two individuals had apologized, it's sort of like, you know, Johnny, tell your sister you're sorry. Right? Yeah, it's, right. Man performance. it's not an actual sincere apology. So I believe that those companies, they were definitely in a tough spot there, but they all made the right decision, which is we're not going to tolerate this and we're not going to stand with this person. This person is not going to be affiliated with us anymore. We don't value that. We don't agree with that. We don't support that. And we're cutting ties. And that sends an even bigger message to the public, which is, you know, these, anything can happen. Kanye is a loose cannon. I mean, he, he yeah. the stuff that comes out of his mouth. And even if he did apologize, when would the next time be right? I mean, cause he is oh. a loose cannon, no filter. 
And so I think while those companies definitely took a hit, what they are absolutely going to regain is consumer loyalty and admiration and respect for doing the right thing. Because can you imagine if they didn't? Can you imagine if they didn't? Then all of us would be going, are you kidding me? Kanye can say those things and he's on your shoes and you're okay with that? I mean, companies simply can't risk it. And and those companies that are being affected by this, like Nike was one of the first major companies to have a diverse workforce and to develop diverse diversity marketing, not just in different kinds of sports, but women's sports and you know youth sports. And they have been a cheerleader of diversity for decades. So this is completely counter to their entire business value and their mission and their, their corporate values. And so you know, you're better off taking, like you said, the bitter pill and swallowing that, but doing the right thing because people have long memories when it comes to corporate behavior, long memories. And uh, you know, we I'm I'm 61 and I remember getting grad school in the late 80s when the Tylenol scare and the Exxon Valdez oil yep. and the companies who did the right thing, they, you know, it was a short-term hit for long-term gain. I mean, people looked at them totally different. When Tylenol came out and said, oh, we're taking responsibility. We're going to do this fix. Even though it wasn't their fault. Yeah. But But when people people don't take responsibility, immediately people over time saying, I don't want to be associated with that. And what does a company stand for? You know, companies spend a ton of money on their branding and their mission statements and their values, and they recruit that way, and they support philanthropic efforts that way. And if you don't stand for what you say you stand for, you're an imposter. I mean, you just... You have nothing then. You have nothing but a product, but you don't have a brand. So I, I think when you talk to really you know smart, talented people, they're like, I don't want to be a part of an organization exactly. that's that acts that way. We have a, another question from the audience. What do you mean by that is another way to ask for clarification that uh, can disarm people as well? So when you talk about that way of asking for clarification. I'm going to assume that you didn't mean that the way it sounded. Yeah. That one. yeah. yeah. What's another way to do that? Yeah. Um, I would just, well, then I would say another way would be to be very direct, which is, you know, Jonathan, that was a really insulting, demeaning, dismissive remark or racist or whatever. And that's not who we are here. I think I'm going to have a, a you know, I'm going to have a conversation with HR about this. And this isn't this isn't who we are and it's not going to be tolerated. I mean, just standing up for yourself or standing up for another person if they're kind of like shell shocked. You know, I do think that we have responsibilities to care for each other at work and not tolerate bullying and racism or sexism or ageism or anything like that. And, um, you know, so you can kind of lob the soft grenade, which is I'm going to assume that you didn't mean that the way it sounded, or you can go directly at it and say, wow, uh, can't believe you actually said that. And um, that's not who we are here. And we don't tolerate that. And you give me no choice but to report that to HR. Yeah, uh- Uh, The person uh, wrote here, I was using that question as another way to respond to those types of comments. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, and again, I think your response was good. I I also think your response of saying to somebody first, you can't mean it that way and giving them a chance to- Backtrack. uh, Yeah, and, and adjust. 
because you can always go to HR. Um, but if you start off right. by um, trying to get them to see the light, but if they're consistently not seeing the light, then they got to go. <laughs> you know, well, you just don't like, need those again, people. Sometimes people blurt things out that are really offensive, but they don't intend it. So a quick example is when I was in my 20s, I was cute <laughs> and yeah. I was doing a presentation. I mean, I'm in my 20s. I'm doing a presentation for a group of guys who are like in their 50s. They're old enough to be my dad. Every one of them is a man in, you know, in his 50s. And I killed it in this presentation. And this guy came up to me afterwards, shook my hand and said, that was a great presentation. And I said, thank you. And he said, you're too pretty to be so smart. Oh, Jesus Christ. So, but wait, let's just hold off here. So <laughs> I recognize that what he thought he was doing was complimenting me, right? I mean, he's yeah, of course. great presentation and he's complimenting me. He's not trying to knock me down. Yeah. He's, he did it in a very clunky way and it was wrong, but I'm just saying he wasn't trying to throw a dagger at me. He was saying, you're too pretty to be so smart. So I think in those situations, the way I handled it then was I was, I said, well, thank you. But you do realize that these two things can reside in the same, you know, person. And he was mortified, Mark. I mean, he was just like, oh, my gosh, I didn't mean it that way. You know, so I gave him a little bit of grace in that moment and, and pointed out what was wrong with what he said. But I didn't go marching to HR. Do you know what I'm saying? And I, was and I just, think that was smarter. Mm -hmm. And you bought a lot of goodwill with that person. Right. And he was profusely apologizing you know it, it was yeah. just he said the wrong thing he yeah. was and i'm sure it stayed dagger. with him like for days yeah. like he oh, probably yeah. came went home and said to his wife i acted like a total idiot right. just totally i just so said the wrong thing mm -hmm. yeah exactly yeah. uh generally curious uh what do you feel is about sales that's so easily seen as a trope of sorts as a what trope trope of sorts yeah. In sales? Yeah. You know, I guess because, you know, you use that sales as an example, because a lot of times companies, they'll protect the salespeople. You know, the example of the top performer. Right. Um, I guess I'm not understanding the question because I, I kind of would go back to the same answer. Is it a different angle on the question? Well, I think, I think, you know, looking how they protect the top performers mm -hmm. you know like companies hate to lose top performers right, right. so they'll right. they'll go out of their way uh to go and say look make this thing go away like you said in the book right you know, and they're hoping the person is like hey you can work this out because we certainly don't want to lose uh this top performer mm -hmm. uh, maybe we even have to ship them to a different right. office or or whatever <laughs> that happens a lot and that doesn't make the problem go away what i would say is when organizations are working with all of their employees including those top performers everyone should hear this the, the same message the same way right so that company should be communicating we are a diverse and inclusive and respectful organization we operate on respect and so the thing is, everybody can get behind respect. There isn't anybody who's like, I really like disrespect, you know? <laughs> and so if we if we put that in there, then when someone does like that high performer says an inappropriate thing, the company can then go to that person and say, uh, you know, Steve or, you know, Marilyn or whatever the person's name is, we've talked about this and that's not who we are at this company. What you said was not only you know, inappropriate and completely out of line. It was disrespectful, not only to the person, but the entire organization, because that's not who we are here. And so that person gets 
a warning, right? It's like a, a significant yeah. warning, which is like, we're not here. And then if it happens again, then it becomes, Marilyn, we've talked about this and we're not seeing any change. So yeah. this is a problem. And you're either putting them on notice or you're dismissing them. But if everybody hears the same way and it's rooted in professionalism and, and respect, then respect, of course, transcends every kind of diversity. Just it's about being respectful. Yeah, I remember the Eagles had a wide receiver who said a racist remark and they fined him and they suspended him. But I had to say that you needed to make and he was a good receiver. You had to make an example of him. I mean, it just was like, right. hey. That's uh, a no, we cannot Shame tolerate on you. It. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> a slap yeah. on mean, the hand. <clears throat> and he apologized to his teammates and everything. And, and the teammates eventually accepted, but you'd been better off just saying to him, no matter who he is, even if he's the That's top player on the team, you're done. Yeah. And we've seen teams do that where yeah. they just go, like, we're just not accepting. You well, and think the about the casualty that occurs with the rest of the team. If the rest yeah. of the team realizes that that person just got a slap on the hand, the rest of the team becomes demoralized because they're like, really? That's who we are here? Like that behavior just gets a little, you know, and the fans and everything. I mean, companies have to take this very seriously these days, especially because there's liability. There's true liability for the organization. Well, I the mean, the person doesn't get sued. The company does. Uh, what I love about sports is it's out there in front of us every day and, and using Kyrie Irving as an example. You know, they said, you know, there was uh, he ignored the coach during a game 10 times. Like the coach gave him direct orders and they're like, and essentially the ownership was looking at, well, he's maybe the most talented guard in the NBA. I work with him. Yeah. And and him. and obviously the team before him, the Celtics felt that way that they can't work with him. So they got rid of him. Mm -hmm. And you've seen this kind of bad behavior on his part. And you have to make a stand and say, you know what? It's just. We can't have you here. It's, right. We're not going to get ahead. You're not um, one of you, us. Yeah. Now, uh, you write that uh, business is not about dealing with the world the way you want it to be. It's about dealing with the world the way the world is. Can you explain what you mean by that? Yes. I mean <clears throat> that I talk to a lot of people, a lot of people who are very overwhelmed by the changing demographics in the United States and diversity and how much attention it's getting. And, and they'll say things like, well, you know, I, I I don't understand why we're making such a big deal out of this. And, you know, I, I don't understand, you know, I, I think this is all just a bunch of PC kumbaya stuff. And, you know, we can't say anything anymore without getting in trouble and all that kind of stuff. And I understand that the changes in our society have been happening so rapidly that some people feel very overwhelmed and perhaps even a little fearful of their ability to keep up. And so that's what I mean by the, the business is about dealing with the world the way the world is. You, you can't just wish it was something else. It's not. It's what it is. And the people who, who wish that it was different, that's not going to change anything. You can, believe, you can want or believe anything you want personally, but when it comes to business, business is moving forward. And it always moves forward in a way that makes money and is good for that business. So it's the same thing, honestly. A little more layered than this because race and ethnicity gets a little sticky for some people. But in the same way that I'm old enough to remember when technology became the thing in business and it was transformational, of course, right? But there were older people who were like, 
I don't know. You know, we used to do business with a handshake and we we're all about relationships. And now it's all about yeah. speed and efficiency. And I mean, they just didn't like it, but, the, yeah. but it didn't matter because business is about dealing with the world the way the world is. So you can put aside your personal preferences and thoughts and concerns and your feelings of overwhelming uh, change and how rapid it's coming, but it's not going to stop the wheel of business and progress from just chugging along. And I think the sooner that we realize that and embrace that and go, this is how the world is now, not just my company or my community, this is how it's done now, that you're better off because it's not like you can fight this unless you exclude yourself from that business environment and that business culture. It's happening. Uh, Another question. That just validates some people. It's like, I'm not trying to change. I'm not trying to change your heart. I'm trying to change the way you do business. Yeah. And hence, everybody wants to see the profits keep going up. So if you got to make this adjustment, you do. Question from the audience. How would you recommend uh, how would you recommend how to work with a colleague that you intensely dislike? (laughs) Oh, we've all had that. Um, One thing to do is to try not to do what is the most natural thing. The most natural thing when we don't like someone is to avoid them, right? To put as much distance as possible. And what I believe is that's not necessarily good for business either, right? Because we should be able to function even if we don't like each other. So what I suggest, and I've been in this situation a number of times, is try to focus on the task at hand. Nowhere in your in your standard operating procedures does it say that you have to like everyone that you work with. You do have to be professional. You do have to be respectful, but you don't have to like them. So the example that I would give is, Mark, if you and I intensely disliked each other, okay, just we do, we're oil and water, man. We just do not get along. We're, we just, we don't click at all. Do you think that you and I could sit down and do a budget forecast? Of course we could, because it's a task. We don't have right. to like each other to do that. Now, I can do that budget forecast with you. We can function and do our jobs. And then... We can separate and like go back to doing what else we do. But there are high performing teams in almost every place that you look that there's no way that everybody could like each other. And yet when they have a job to do, they focus on it. So look at the military. Do you think everybody in a troop likes everybody else? No way. No way. But when they get out there, they have a job to do and they do it. So we're always going to have people that we love working with and people we despise working with. And that's natural. So as long as we're professional and respectful, we'll be okay. But just try to focus on, okay, we're sitting down to do a budget forecast for, you know, first quarter. That's our job. I don't have to have emotions about that with Mark. You know, we have to think about when we're doing job descriptions to attract the right people. You know, what are some of the bias phrases we've got to stay away from? Well, and that's a really good point because a lot of job descriptions were written ages ago and then people like shelved them and really haven't ever looked back at them. So here's a couple that, um, you know, that that I would recommend and they're in the book about, you know, staying away from is, for example, don't say clean shaven. You know, the candidate must be clean shaven because that automatically eliminates eliminates most women. We don't have hair on our face, you know. So a, a better way to say that would be must have a neat and tidy appearance. Right. Or even the the standard must have three to five years of experience that eliminates people, because if I have seven years of experience, you just told me I'm overqualified. 
A better way to say that would be must have a minimum of three years of experience. Or what about, you know, must have own car? Why? Lots of people don't have a car, especially young people. They just Uber everywhere they go. A better thing would be to say must have reliable transportation. That transportation could take a number of different forms. Um, and I think there's other things that are really starting to be red flags for people uh, when it comes to job descriptions. When companies say things like, we're a family here, a family environment. <laughs> what people are reading into that is like, oh, so we can bicker and be abused just like our families are difficult or um, duties that are over and above the, the the core responsibilities. People see that as a flag of like, wow, I'm going to be working a lot of late hours. I mean, there's just some things that when you're thinking about your job descriptions, try not to you know eliminate any group and things like um, must be must be a native English speaker. Why? Why couldn't it be must be fluent in English? Why do I have to be a native English speaker? Isn't really fluency the, the, the thing that you want? So there's a lot of things that are in job descriptions that have been languishing like that for decades and nobody really thought about it. Um, so, you know, we have to be careful of, of those things and broaden the lens. Yeah, you know what? I didn't think about the family-oriented one. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I was just reading an article the other day and I did a post on LinkedIn about like the red flags that especially young people perceive as the language and job descriptions or company descriptions that people are like, whoa, it's a serious red flag. And then they share that online and they're like talking about it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 Uh, why do women typically only apply for positions where they meet 100 percent of the jobs criteria? Is that really still true? That's really true. Exactly. There's uh, studies that show that if women, if, you know, here's the job description. Let's say it's 10 characteristics or skills that you have. and if women look at that and they feel that they don't have all of those skills, they will not apply. They will self-edit themselves out of that job um, opportunity. Whereas men, and studies show this, men will go for it even if they're missing like 60% of the skills, they'll just still go for it. And I don't know why, you know, some of these research things, we know what, but we don't know why. I'm going to take a hypothesis and say, it's a confidence thing. Perhaps men are sort of like a little bit more alpha and they're like, yeah, what have I got to lose? I'll go for it, right? I'll go for it and see if it works. Whereas women, I think, take things more literally and they look at a list like that thoughtfully and they go, oh, you know, see, I'm not qualified. I have nine of the 10, but I don't have all 10. And so one of the things that we have to realize is that we're, we want to look at applicants who are very, we want to make the application process as comfortable for people as possible. And so if there's a list of criteria, we might say, a better way to say it is, here are the, the, uh, the professional requirements, okay? Because, you know, like if you're a CPA, yeah. then you need to have a certification that you're a certified public accountant, okay? Like that's right. not, no not wishy-washy, right? So here are the requirements. And then here are the skills that would add uh, value to that, you know, prefer, additional preferred skills. But you're not saying we're going to rule you out if you don't have those. We're saying additional preferred skills. So the core skills are the core skills, but almost all job descriptions have some things in there that would be nice to have, but they're not required. Um, what should the composition of the interview team look like oh. when you're interviewing a candidate? Thank you so much for asking that question because it's really important. Make that, that interviewing panel, the evaluators and the hiring uh, decision makers, as diverse as possible in whatever way that diversity 
manifests itself. Let's say it's a manufacturing company. That diversity might not be age and gender and things like that. It might be, here's the IT guy, here's the ops manager, here's the sales manager. But studies have shown that um, candidates are far more interested in a company when they have a diverse panel of people who are interviewing them. And women in particular respond very, very well to that. And especially if there's even just one woman on that panel. So again, it can be racial, ethnic, age, gender composition, or it can be um, aspects of the company and roles and responsibilities that are the diverse things. But people actually get a much better picture of a company and they feel much better about joining a company. It's more attractive to them when they are interviewed by a diverse panel. Uh, how important is it for minority kinds to have a mentor and what makes for a good mentor? I think it's very important because um, anybody can benefit from being a mentor, but many people of color and minority and um, diverse uh, employees and candidates don't have the connections that other people have, right? So maybe they didn't grow up around a golf course and playing golf with somebody. Maybe they don't go to church with the same, you know, types of people that are at the company. We Business operates a lot on networking and connections. And so if those networking and connections aren't there, there's a gap. And I'll give you a quick example. A friend of mine is a, a, a woman, a black woman professor at the University of Utah. And very early in her career, she, her, her manager was white. Very early in her career, her manager called her into her office one day and said, hey, this person is going to be retiring in six months. Do you want their job? And my friend said, yes. And she said, OK, we've got six months to get you ready. Here's what that means. You're going to need to be on some committees. And you're going to need to meet some people and be exposed to some people who will be part of that decision-making process. So getting on these committees, I will help you get on these committees. And I'm going to make some introductions to you where people can get to know you so that when the decision's being made, they're not going, I'm sorry, Joy Pierce, who? Right. Uh -huh. And so that's what a good mentor does is they open doors for people that those doors might not otherwise be open. Aside from being good counsel and being a good listener and helping them through the day-to-day -day things that they wanna just bounce off of somebody with more experience, though the best mentors are the ones who look at the opportunities ahead for someone and say, let me get you ready for this because it's not just gonna happen by osmosis. you know. And decisions about putting people in key positions happen behind closed doors. So if there's nobody advocating for that person, if I say, you know, Marcos would be a really good person to be promoted to the warehouse supervisor and all the other people in the room go, who's Marcos, right? It's tough. But if I've made opportunities for people to hear about Marcos's um, contributions and performance, then they go, oh, okay. I mean, this isn't completely new information. So it's about advocating and opening doors. Uh, you know, it even works that way in the military that if you talk to people, become generals. If they didn't have supporters, no matter how talented they were, it just doesn't happen. You don't end up becoming, it's very political. It's not mm -hmm. based you gotta on- you got to have people who vouch for you and who can actually advocate for you based on their actual experiences, not just like I hey, I like this guy. Yeah, yeah, I, without question. Mm -hmm. In the book, uh, you mentioned that white colleagues often feel uncomfortable talking to minorities about their experiences. And that minority com, uh, colleagues often welcome the chance to educate white colleagues on what they go through. What, what's your advice? Uh, what's your advice to encourage open conversation? And I mean two way, not one way. Right. Two way conversation. Many um, many white people are very uncomfortable hearing um, 
people of color's personal experiences or life experiences or business experiences, especially if they were difficult or really often traumatic, because for many white people, and I would say most white people, those things don't happen to us, right? They just don't. So um, what happens is when those conversations start taking place and let's say a, a person of color or a diverse person starts talking about how they were treated or a situation that happened to them, white colleagues start to squirm, okay? Because it, it, what we're hearing is so awful, but it's also not something that would ever happen to us. And we know that. And so it's like, okay, here's this person who's been traumatized. And yet I don't know what that's like. That didn't happen to me. And so what happens when we feel the squirm is that oftentimes the white person's response will be to actually try to downplay it because it's making us squirm so much that we don't know what else to do. And so we'll say things like, well, that was a long time ago, Mark, that wouldn't happen today. Or, well, you were just working with a really bad group of people, you know, not everybody's bad. We end up refuting their experience. sounds bad. You just saying that. <laughs> Absolutely. Because we're refuting somebody's real life experience, right. Or, or yeah. downplaying it. And I think, I feel like that's incredibly dismissive because here's somebody who's actually sharing and saying, Hey, this happened to me. How can we make sure that that doesn't ever happen at our company? Or, you know, what, what steps can we take to make sure that we are inclusive, et cetera. And as difficult as it is to hear those awful things, we have to settle into the squirm. We have to be able to just listen and not interrupt and not refute it and not downplay it. And in fact, lean in to listen more and say, if you want to tell me more about that, I'm listening. That that just sounds absolutely awful. And if you don't want to tell me anything more about that, I understand, you know, or I respect that. Because I feel like if we're squirming, we're actually getting somewhere. And it's incredibly uncomfortable. I mean, you have to really just steal yourself because I've heard some things that are just absolutely horrific. And, and I can't believe that they happen, but they do. And so it's not up to anybody to say, well, you know, that wouldn't happen anymore, or you shouldn't feel upset about that. Oh my gosh, my boxing coach, I'm a boxer. My boxing coach is black and we talk a lot about race. And the boxing gym that I go to is in a strip shopping center where there's a lot of, you know, retail and there's a Joanne yeah. Fabrics right next to the gym and no denigration to Joanne, but the their core demography and their demographic target is like a lot of older women who do crafts and things like that. Right. And he was telling me one day that whenever and he's 49 years old and he said, you know, when I walk out of the gym and it's dusk, I hear the locks clicking in the parking lot. <laughs> and I said, you're, are you kidding me? And I was kind of like, Oh, come on, don't be so dramatic. And he goes, Kelly, Every day. And I kind of pushed back at him and I was like, really, a 49 year old man walking out of a gym with a duffel bag, clearly dressed in gym clothes. And I said, and he said, every day the locks click. And, he, and I said, why? And he said, I guess they think I'm going to carjack them. You know what? That does not happen to me. Mm -hmm. And that does not happen probably to you, Mark, you know? And so like, we have to sit with that awfulness and go, Wow. I'm so sorry that that happens to you. We can't refute it. We can't downplay it. We can't say, don't make a big deal out of that, Randy. It's real. It I, 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 I see it. I had um, a, a girlfriend of mine who came to my club and we were with my mom and they asked her to give up her seat because they thought she was like the maid. <gasps> and, 
And and I'm sitting working, and then she tells me, I'm like horrified. That That wouldn't happen to you, Mark. Yeah. That wouldn't happen to you. And it wouldn't happen to me. Yeah, right. And that's the real, real. And that's why if we're going to actually stand together with our colleagues, we have to be able to handle conversations like that and listen to that and and not try to refute it, interrupt it, or downplay it. it we have to ab- absorb it and just realize how awful that is and say, what can I do to support you? I'm sorry you lived through that. You know, what can we do to support and, you or, or to be different? be able to ask questions about it, you know, yeah. like not be afraid to ask the questions yep. to learn more. Uh, uh, about it and have discussion on it. Mm-hmm. A, a lot of senior male leaders have been scared off by the Me Too movement. I, I've heard this by women chief uh, HR officers in being mentors for women. How do you get them back and establish an understandable guideline to follow when interacting with women mentees? Because they said, you know, just they said, listen, I, I know I'm going to say something stupid. I, 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 I'm sure I've said it inappropriate. She even told me it's a global company. Said the CEO goes, Geez, I'm sure I've acted like an idiot. How do we go and handle this? And they wanted to make sure that the men who were mostly in the leadership roles at this company did work with the women to help them get into those same ranks. So what's your advice to these folks? This is kind of tough for me because I feel like it's a really simple answer. Yeah. And obviously it's a complex issue, but my simple answer would be don't insult or patronize anybody ever. Don't don't treat a woman differently than you would treat a man, you know, or a non-binary person in those situations. Keep it focused on business. Business is about results and performance and tactics and support. Okay, we all need support. And so I think if uh, if you're just driving down the center lane of like, how can I help you? What are you struggling with? Let's talk about that. You know what. What are you what are you running up against that is is difficult for you to you know break through? And let me tell you what my experience was with that. And let's talk about how we can move forward with that. That's what mentoring really is. I don't feel like it has to be tailored to a woman. I feel like, and, and there's probably women who would disagree with me because there are differences between men and women. Women have been found to be more nurturing and better at like consensus building, but in terms of being like sued for an inappropriate comment, I feel that it's not that hard to just have a professional conversation that's straight down the center lane. And the best way to approach conversations is to ask your mentee, what can I do to support you? I'm here to be your advocate and to help you move ahead in this organization and achieve all of your goals and objectives professionally. And how can I help you? What are you struggling with? We all struggle with things. Let's work on that. How is that gender specific? I Kelly, I'm going to take some say, for that. <laughs> I hate to say we've run out of time. You know, we could have spent like a couple more hours with Days. you. You were right <laughs> that we didn't get to a- ask all the questions that I had put forth, but it was a fabulous conversation. Thank you. I, I, I would definitely want to have you back next year to talk about one of your other books or whatever the newest book is, because it was just an amazing conversation. I thank everybody for participating thank today. Thank you to the audience. Yeah, great yeah. questions. And I uh, wish you the best with this newest book as well. And remember, you come to Philadelphia, you've got a free meal right here. I'm going to say, like, Mark, we're, we're going to dinner. I'm coming over to your house. You, you put the invitation out there. I'll take you up on it for I, sure. And I'm a good cook. So Ooh, we can do that too. 
I want to well, give thanks to the audience, really. Thank you for tuning into this because it tells me a lot about you and that you care about this topic. So thank you so much, audience. Everybody have a wonderful weekend. We'll see you next week. Michael Yusim, who talks about leadership from Wharton, will be on our guest next week. Have a great one, everyone. Take care. Bye. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Best Business Minds. Tune in every Friday at 12 p.m. Eastern Time for our live recordings. Go to www.thebestbusinessminds.com for more information and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter to be kept up to date with our upcoming guests and other bonus material. See you next time.